This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's good to see everybody tonight. It's good to see the computers working. (laughs) Turned out we had a blown breaker fuse up here last time. Um, We are starting the uh, study, the Wednesday night study of the book of Colossians. It's going to be several men participating, giving a series of studies, and we'll kind of do a look at an outline of what those will be at the very end. Um, But Colossians is an exciting book. Uh, We live in a world today where people are They're seeking all kinds of knowledge apart from God. Uh, You know, we've recently seen at the uh, area-wide meeting we just had with uh, Wheeler some apologetics. You know, people are faced with a lot of heretical ideas, things that pull them away from God. And Colossians is a book that's designed to address just that. So what I'm going to do tonight is without stealing the thunder from all the future lessons, we're just going to go over uh, an outline of Colossians a little bit of its background, and just lay the groundwork, as was already said, for these future lessons. And the good ones will start next Wednesday with Brother Kalen. All right, so when it comes to foundations, we all know that you want immovable bedrock as opposed to sand, right? When it comes to truth, the same principle applies. But there's a lot of impediments to the truth out there, and that's just a reality. People can't even define what the truth is, or at least they don't want to define what the truth is anymore. I want to look very quickly here at a few patches of sandy ground that people are trying to build their ideas on today. They're trying to build their worldview, their religious view, their governing views on these and other things. First is secular humanism. This is a reliance upon reason, logic, and naturalism or realism as opposed to religious dogma. Secular humanists claim they have morals without God, but Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26 tells us that morals come from God, and without God, there can be only evil from the flesh. There is no such thing as morals or justice or right, you know, right without God. That's why you see the disintegration of our laws today because God has been removed from our nation, but we're still trying to promote laws that were built on Judeo-Christian principles that we no longer understand or support. Then you have religious syncretism. This is the blending of two or more religions. You might be saying, well, that doesn't really happen, but it does. Here's an example of one that happened back in the 30s called Rastafarianism. These were, its founders were actually, they were members of the African culture, African-American culture. Um, They were supporters of black pride and Judaism. Interesting mix, right? Well, the result was a new religion that teaches that the emperor of Ethiopia is the reincarnation of God. It says that black people are the true Israelites. It says that uh, marijuana is a sacred herb given by God specifically for the purpose of worship. They advocate a return to Africa, which they call Zion and label as the promised land. They call God Yah, similar to Yahweh, and they practice a type of meditation that allows them to supposedly commune with spirit beings. Islam, we're not going into it tonight, but if you examine its history, is also 
a religion born of syncretism. It is when people take ideas, often wrong ideas, or an amalgamation of things, and they start trying to blend them together until what you eventually have is something new altogether. And you're seeing that in our society today. But God warned against this type of religious mixing in Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 16. And what about this one? Climate change. Climate change has become a religion in its own right, teaching that mankind is the master of the world, that we can control weather, if we will first enslave and control people. And that's just the truth of it. Um, did you know, however, that I, I found this and I, I was smiling the whole time I read it. Did you know this isn't the first time uh, that God has addressed people trying to, uh, I don't know, become a little bit alarmist over the climate, but you didn't know that was in the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. <clears throat> this is God speaking. And he says, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence? Now listen to this. Which, or who, have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree. A perpetual means never ending, never ceasing. God has created the borders with the sand between the water and the land. And he says that even though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter. In his season, he reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withheld, withholding good things from you. People have been forgetting for a very, very long time who sets the levels of the sea, who sends rain or withholds it, who allows famine to happen and harvest to grow or not and to happen. We are to fear God, we're told, for he manages the universe. Our survival does not depend on controlling the climate, the harvest, or the seas. Our survival, according to this verse, depends on our fear, our proper fear of the Lord. And he's going to manage the planet as he sees fit, regardless of what we do. He is God, we are not. But climate alarmism has become a religion. It's a, it's a mechanism for control. It is something that people... They don't even know facts about it anymore. They believe lies because it is a religious belief that, that has formed out of error. Then you have moral relativism, which says there is no right and there is no wrong. Just follow the culture. As the saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. If it feels right, then you just do it. For we are a law unto ourselves, they say. But Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells us something different, doesn't it? It says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And the last one I'm going to point out is this one, <clears throat> living your truth. You could also throw in, I'm living my best life, all this cliche nonsense. You hear people, the drivel that they're spouting about this trash. They don't oftentimes realize what it is they're actually saying. Living your truth. Essentially, this is a definition given by psychology uh, for what living your truth means. But essentially, it means you put all your focus on yourself. 
And the definition on the screen, look at how many times it references one's self and how it views others as stressful and problematic at best. The focus is on doing what makes you feel good, what gives you the least stress, what allows you to serve yourself the best. I'm living my best life. I wouldn't be caught dead saying that. Your best life is spent in service and servitude, being sacrificed and dying for Jesus. Not living your best life for your own ends. But this living your truth stuff, it's hogwash and it's everywhere. We know a little bit about what truth is, though, don't we? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. It's very simple. This is, this is it. Your truth, my truth, the truth is Jesus Christ. But somehow that's gotten lost in this world. And these are just a sampling of the wrong ideas that pervade our society, and our tolerance of them has caused the church to be ineffective largely. It's allowed society to just go wild around us. You know, we're, um, we're on a time schedule and a plan that God has laid in place, but he never did actually give us, he said, you're not going to know the day and the hour. And I firmly believe that a lot of that has to do with the performance of the church because we have verses that say that in the end, in the end times, there will only be a remnant of the church that has survived, the true church. And we're also told that Jesus will have to return lest we destroy ourselves. So all of these problems that we're seeing, you see how it's ripping our world apart right now. And these problems, they're all just a repackaging of the same lie that Satan told back in the garden. What was that lie? Well, it's ultimately a promise of Godhood. The idea that man is the measure of all things rather than God and that with man all things are possible rather than the correct with God all things are possible. So the book of Colossians presents Christ as the God-man Savior, the creator and the sustainer of the universe who is the total solution for man's needs across all time and, all, and eternity. Christ is preeminent. He is all-sufficient. This is the message you're going to see in Colossians. Someone uh, said about Colossians that what it really does is it points out and it says, first of all, you need to understand that Christ is enough for salvation. He is enough for a fulfilling life. He is enough for any problem that comes your way. And if you try to take the gospel and piece it out with rags and tatters of alien cults, dumb ideas, new things that mankind is coming up with, it doesn't enrich the gospel, it corrupts it. That's why Colossians is so important to study. It is a book that counters the invasive philosophies of man with the all-sufficient work of Christ. And in a minute, when we look at how Colossians came to be written, you'll kind of get some understanding for that, I hope, about how this came to happen. So Paul identifies himself as the author of Colossians three times in the book. There is something called the uh, Muratorian Fragment. It's a document that was written around A.D. 180. And it lists books considered by the church at that time to be divinely inspired. <clears throat> and it includes Colossians as a Pauline epistle. 
Several early church fathers also attested to the fact this was a Pauline epistle. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen. We have more than sufficient proof to, to say beyond a shadow of a doubt Paul wrote this. It's considered most likely that Paul wrote Colossians while he was imprisoned in Rome around A.D. 60. And it's one of four so-called prison epistles, which includes Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. There are many similarities between Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and that leads people to believe they were probably all written about the same time. Imagine Paul sits down in the prison cell. He's got these issues on his mind, and just one after another, he knocks these letters out and sends them out at the same time. Now, the ones that have the closest um, similarity are Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians focuses on Christian unity found in Christ, but Colossians stresses the completeness of the believer in Christ. It's all about Christ, but on the one hand, it's stop fighting, come together. On the other hand, it is you don't need any other answers, you don't need any other supplements, all you need is Christ. So Colossians takes the stronger tone. This is Paul being more forceful in Colossians, as you'll see. <clears throat> the reason for that is a false teaching that had cropped up. The city of Colossae, <clears throat> excuse me, it was in the same basic area as the seven churches of Revelation. And it pairs quite well with our study of those churches. Colossae was a Greco-Phrygian city in the Roman proconsular of Asia, which is also known as Asia Minor. It was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and it was one of three cities located in the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Heropolis, and Laodicea, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will be soon. So what was going on in Laodicea, you can be sure, was going on in Colossae as well. For the most part, the inhabitants of this area were Gentiles, but there was a considerable quality, uh, quantity of Jews among them. They didn't have a lot of influence on the culture. There's not a lot of relics left behind, but there were about 50,000 Jews that were also present. Now, let's see, I think I just skipped something. Okay. Uh, there's archaeological evidence that says that this city started out as a Hittite settlement, dating all the way back to 3500 B.C., the locals call the mountains that you see back there the Twin Peaks, and the location uh, is suitable. This is the type of place that Hittites built their cities. They were defensible. They were fortress-like. <clears throat> and uh, they also valued mountains and water, and of course both are present here at Colossae. You've got a river. You've got mountains all around. The course of this river, Lycus, <clears throat> probably was incorporated within the city walls during the Greco-Roman period when Paul was writing. There were smaller waterways throughout, and with that, they grew olives, they, uh, vines, timber, fruit trees. They used all these things for their most famous product, which was textiles, clothing. And the city, Vista, you know, it's dominated by this Mount Cadmus, which towers nearly 8,300 feet above sea level. So it's a very dramatic location. It's beautiful, and... Uh, when you look at that, uh, you see that valley there, what happened was is uh, from the west and the east, they would come and they would trade. This was like a meeting point in the middle of this valley here. So there was a lot of things that made, made its way there. It was like the center of trade and anytime trade and money come into a place tends to get ruined, doesn't it? You don't see a lot of ugly places in our country as liberal havens. You see our... <laughs> most beautiful areas 
as those havens. It was no different back during this time. Now, what we know about the founding of the church at Colossae was that it was a Pauline church, but it was an indirect Pauline church. And by that, I mean, if you remember our study of Ephesus, Paul spent three years teaching at the school of Tyrannus. And during this time, we're told in Acts 19.10 that all Asia, all Asia Minor, heard the word. Now, as far as we know, Paul never actually visited Colossae. At least he didn't at the time he wrote this epistle, and we know that if he hadn't uh, done it before this, he never got a chance to. He had only heard about the church, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 9, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. What happened was, was while on a visit to Ephesus, there was a young man from Colossae named Epaphras, who evidently heard the gospel from Paul. He returned back to Colossae and uh, helped establish that church there. Uh, you can see that Colossians 1, verse 7 and chapter 4, verse 12. So, essentially, this church, what you have here, you have a church that somebody who was impacted by Paul's teachings went home and established this church. Paul didn't do it himself. He wasn't there in person. There were mainly Gentiles there, and these Gentiles were involved in all those kind of ideas we talked about at the very beginning of the lesson. Now, they had different names for them sometimes, but at the end of the day, all of those things were Gentile ideas primarily, with the exception of Judaizing, which we'll get to. And so Paul, when he heard about this, he also heard what was going on, and it came to him that here you have a fledgling church. They want to serve Christ. They're trying to respond to the gospel, but they've got some problems. And he had never been there to minister to them directly. And so this is what he's doing here as he writes Colossians. Um, as far as why Colossians was written, we've already kind of said somewhat, there was a doctrinal heresy that was creeping into the church. <clears throat> and we're not given a name for this heresy, likely because in this period, labels hadn't been given to everything yet. But scholars agree it was probably a mixture of Judaism and something called Gnosticism. And we're going to get into much more detail on Gnosticism, agnosticism, that kind of stuff when we come to that point in the book. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is just read the verses where Paul alludes to this vulnerability toward deception about the faith. It's all in chapter 2, verses 4, 8, 16, 18, and 21 through 23. It's up there on the screen. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after uh, the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, <clears throat> intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using? These are all after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed shown, uh, indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So what you have here, you have 
the philosophy we talked about. You have Judaism talking about obeying the laws. You have people who um, notice stuff like here, this voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. You realize that that is what morphed into eventually the Catholic Church. And then uh, you also have this asceticism, where's it at? You know, monks going off in the desert, people flogging themselves, starving themselves, being alone, again, mainly seen in the Catholic Church, not just them, but these are all things. Here you're seeing the origin of all these heretical things that these other, you know, people ask, what's wrong with the Catholic Church? It was the first church. What well, was the first church to be wrong? That's what's wrong with it. And Paul addresses it very early on. The, the church hadn't been around. Jesus hadn't been dead more than about 25 years or so before these ideas were here, and Paul was having to address this stuff early on. So, unfortunately, people didn't listen. They're still not listening. We're still losing people to this same stuff here. And you have to ask why. Well, the answer is simple, because we have allowed ourselves to be beguiled by enticing words. We listen where we shouldn't listen. We look where we shouldn't look. We touch what we shouldn't touch. We take away from the grace of the Lord. And you know, all those things are symptoms of one thing. Taking your eye off Jesus. Taking your eye off what he did, how he did it, and how we cannot add anything to it. So, that's, that's your threefold package of problems. Philosophy, traditions of men, and a spirituality that's focused on the mind and body of man rather than focus on Christ. And like I said, I don't want to steal from anybody else's lessons, so leave it at that. As far as this Gnosticism goes, <clears throat> I'm sure you've heard this term before. Uh, this is going to be one of the topic that I chose for myself, so I can say a little bit about this one. Um, when he mentions philosophy and vain deceit, this is the early form of Gnosticism that I mentioned, and it would have been a Gentile doctrine primarily. It was a form of mysticism, and it claimed that Christ was a higher being, but that, but it, that he wasn't God. It traces its roots all the way back to the very beginning. So there was this question, was Jesus actually God? And the reason why this mattered to people was they believed all material things, the earth, the universe, all of it was, was inherently evil. And if it was inherently evil, then a, an absolutely pure and perfect God could not have created it. So there's another God, the Old, Old Testament God. They believe Old Testament, New Testament are two different gods. And they say that out of that, <clears throat> this pure God came this Old Testament God, which ends up being like Satan. They call it the Demiurge. And what he supposedly came from was a desire for wisdom. But this was wisdom that belonged to God. And in his attempt to discover it, well, he became an evil God. <clears throat> that's, that's their idea. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge. And generally speaking, Gnosticism teaches that salvation is achieved through special knowledge. And this knowledge is usually dealt with uh, in relationship to some transcendent being. So to put it in perspective, people believe that we are, our soul is trapped in a physical body which is evil and wicked. And we live in a wicked uh, plane of existence. God has, he can't touch us, he can't help us, 
He can't do anything. He won't because we're evil. So we're trapped. So they say that Jesus came not because he was God, because he can't become man, then he's evil too. You see the problem here? Can't be the God-man. And if he can't be man, then he can't fully atone for our sins. And so we would still be in our sins. So this was the problem Paul was dealing with. You had this idea. It took little bits of truth. It was very confusing to people. People would say, well, what does it matter if Jesus was a created being uh, if he was really man, can't we just say that he was a manifestation of God? What does it matter if he was man? It matters because if he's not man, he can't stand in your place as a man. You have to stand for yourself. And Gnosticism is still present today. It's present in a lot of ways. You know, I'm, I think about Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim they're not Gnostic, but they most certainly are. They go out of their way to say, we are not Gnostic, we don't believe that, but they don't believe in Jesus. They believe only in Jehovah. They believe, uh, well, we're not going to get too much into it, but this is, this is what I want you to understand. These cults, these ideas, they are still present today. They are still pulling people today. They may have different names, but it's our responsibility to understand what they are. Sometimes we get comfortable and we feel like, hey, I know this. And everybody that I'm around, my kids, whoever, they know this. And then one day we turn around and our kids are entertaining these very ideas because maybe we don't fully understand them ourselves. So um, I want you to understand just how important this was. Every apostle dealt with this in one way or the other. Look at what John said, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come. And even now already it is in the world. So you see here what this really is. Gnosticism, all these ideas, they are elaborate ruses by Satan to steal away salvation from people. And if you're like me and someone had just approached you today on the street and said, tell me, and you say, have you ever uh, accepted Jesus, whatever it is, you know, you've been baptized, whatever conversation you're having. And they say, well, I'm, I'm agnostic. Would you even know what that meant? What they really meant? Now, I'm here to tell you, Nine times out of ten, they themselves don't know what it means, and we'll get into that later. But this is the point. This stuff exists. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to fight against it. We don't know how to save people out of it, including our own kids sometimes. And so I'm hopeful that as we study through Colossians, we're going to see how Paul did that. And uh, Paul's a much better teacher than uh, anyone available today, I think. So we're in for a treat as far as that goes. The last little thing that he mentioned, you'll notice in there, was Judaizers. And this was an interesting problem. Um, even though the Jews didn't control things down there, they still saw themselves as the holy elect people of God that had, you know, sort of the checklist that you had to follow in order to be Christians. It's almost as if they'd come up to a Gentile and say, hey, you're, I believe in Christ, you believe in Christ, you know, you do good. Now, let me further explain to you, if you want to truly be a child of God, what else you have to do. Now, people will say, 
again, that this doesn't happen today. I'm here to tell you this exact thing happens in Alma every day, and you just may not have seen it, where people will come and they'll say, you have to, you have to observe the Jewish feast. You have to observe dietary laws. You have to know what the moons are and when things happen. And if you don't do those things, well, I'm not going to say you're going to hell, but let's just say God's not going to be very happy with you. That is exactly what happened here. Now, here's the interesting thing. Can you observe Jewish feasts and all these sort of things and be a Christian? Of course you can. In fact, Jesus, I think, encourages us to, to the extent that we understand and are able to participate in, at a minimum, the Jewish feasts. There are certain of them that we will all participate in someday. But you have to do that with an understanding that this is not what your salvation is built upon. And the problem is, is that people start dabbling in Judaism and they start saying, well, you know, I feel more holy having done this. And this is God's word. And mm, before you know it, there is this sense that it has to be done. And then they're drawing other people around and they're making a group and they're spreading it out. And before you know it, you have a whole group of Judaizers in your midst pulling people out of your church. All because we don't take these things seriously. And we can point to these people and say, you know, you're saying these things. You want to see what Paul had to say about it? And that's another interesting thing that we're going to get to study in Colossians. So anyway, um, I hope that you're going to be excited and edified as we go through this study. Um, it doesn't take long for false teaching and false doctrine to corrupt a church, as you'll see. You, did you know that... Um, that timeline that I had up, the church had only been established in Colossae for, I don't know, five to six years or something before it was completely getting derailed. Doesn't take long. Uh, and that was with the teaching of Paul. You had a direct disciple of Paul go and start that church, and in five to six years it had gotten out of control. And that church is no longer there. So um, when we separate ourselves from Christ, we become a body without a head. And a body without a head is dead. If a headless body were to cling to life as it died, you ever, who was it? Somebody was telling me the other day they saw a picture of like their old uh, relatives, these old women. There may be somebody here in the church. And they had a chicken. They had those long bonnets. If it was somebody, I'm telling your story. I hope I don't mess it up. And they had a chicken in either hand. And they're taking this thing. And what they were doing for fun is those two old women one, each one with a chicken, they'd start spinning that chicken until the body would fly off, and they would start cackling and laughing, and that was what they did for fun. And, but then when you drop that body, that headless body on the ground, a lot of times it continues to twitch. In fact, there are some animals and things where you cut its head off, and it'll still run around and move. It'll thrash, and it'll flail, cause damage. It, it's nasty. It's getting blood everywhere. How many headless churches are flailing about in our society even now? Just causing damage everywhere that they are. They've got loud mouths about everything but the truth. They're passionate about everything but Jesus. And when they talk about Jesus, the focus isn't really on Jesus. It's about them living their best life and their truth and how Jesus facilitates that. And it's exactly backwards of what it should be. So, 
let's not let the devil take us by the neck and swing us around until we're a flailing, headless body. In every case, Christ was sufficient. He is still the only answer to any question of life that has passed. So, as I said, this is going to be uh, the breakdown of the lessons. Brother Kalen is dealing with chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, faith in Christ. This is on the Google calendar, at least some of them are. And I think Brother Heath is doing chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, is what I was told. So, uh, anyway, that'll get filled out. I intend to do chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and, and on it goes. So, anyway, uh, these are the things that you can expect to be uh, looking at. So, that wraps up our introduction. I know it wasn't a real lesson. I hope it was uh, at least fruitful at laying the groundwork. So, we didn't really talk about uh, first principles, as it were, but I just want to let you know that... Um, Regardless of what anybody up here is saying, if Christ is putting it on your heart that it's time to be baptized or that you need to come forward and seek the prayers of the church, there really is no better time. This may be the only time that we have. So please, if there be one of either case, you need the prayers of the church, come forward, have a seat on one of these front benches as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.